There's some sweet singing right there. Uh, thank you, worship team, for helping lead us in congregational singing. Um, if you want to go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 7, uh, I've been tasked with uh, preaching through the Sermon on the Mount uh, whenever it's been my opportunity to preach here. And uh, anyways, at, at some point we'll finish the Sermon on the Mount. I just don't know when, <laughs> so I'm not going to make any promises. I always have, you know, plans to preach through more of this at a time, and, and it just doesn't happen. But I uh, hope it's been good for your soul as it has been for mine when I, uh, whenever I've preached. It's also good to see so many of you here. Um, man, it's uh, always, always neat how every week this place just kind of just fills up a little more and more uh, as we get in uh, to things here. Um, and we just don't take it for granted to have those of you here with us today who are guests. Some of you maybe are exploring uh, biblical Christianity uh, with us today, and we're especially glad to have you uh, with us here and would even say, just before we get started, uh, man, feel free immediately after the service to hang out, uh, talk to the people around you, talk to one of us as, as pastors here. Um, we're glad to answer your questions. We know uh, sometimes there are people here for classes as well, and we want to be able to help you get a good grade on your papers uh, if you're here uh, even for that, but also to know a little bit more about what it is that we believe and the hope that we hold fast. That said, I'm going to read our text, and then we're going to pray and get right into things. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Jesus says, Ask. And it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? <laughs> Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us that you have not left us here as orphans, but by your gift of faith granted to us in Christ Jesus alone for the forgiveness of our sins and for all the righteous standing we need to stand before you. We thank you that your spirit has done this and in so has united us to Christ Jesus. Father, that whatever we ask, we know that we have a great mediator and intercessor who perfects our prayers, that even if we ask for things that we shouldn't ask for, our mediator knows how to deal with those things. And Father, we can trust that you will always give us what is good and what is at the heart of a good father. Father, help us to know these things all the more today and to delight in you because of them. And we pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. When uh, me and my sister 
were younger, um, I'd say like late elementary school age, even the beginning of middle school, before we were really old enough to stay at home on our own, there would be seasons where our parents would, uh, would both work third shift. Um, I feel like my parents, man, they were workaholics. Boy, they, they loved us and worked hard to try to just bless us with many things, a lot of things that we probably, I'm sure, just didn't even need, but that was just the way that they loved on us was, was by working a lot and working really hard. And so with that said, sometimes they would work third shift jobs. They would both be working third shift together. And, and after we would get out of school, we would go over to grandma's house. Uh, and my aunt and uncle, I had a grandma who had like crippling arthritis from the time she was in her early 30s. Um, man, it's amazing she moved around as long as she did without a wheelchair, but she lived most of her life uh, in this little, small, like 19, early 1960s single wide trailer that was super drafty. Um, and it was on the property of my aunt and uncle who really, you know, just make sure to take care of grandma there. But in the evening times, we would be over there and it just would not fail every single night. Grandma Robinson, my, my precious United Methodist grandma who loved Jesus like crazy and was a great example of faith, uh, would come into uh, our room where me and my sister would sleep at night and she would just bring the hymnal and would sing. <laughs> and then after that, she would pray for us, and then she would wheel back to her bedroom where me and my sister couldn't get sleep because she was up praying for every single person out loud that she knew on planet Earth. <laughs> uh, some of the sweetest times, but, but there was one hymn that she loved to sing, and uh, I'm not going to sing it for us this morning, but I am going to quote a part of it because it's fitting here. It says, What a friend we have in Jesus all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. But listen to this. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Amen, but that's some painful stuff right there. And the amen is because it's true. What peace we often forfeit, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. This morning, we have such sweet words given to us by the Lord Jesus, who already since Matthew chapter 5, when he began this sermon, on the mount where it's believed he preached this on that, on that beautiful northwestern uh, shore of Galilee, preached this message to his followers. He preached a lot on prayer in this, the right way to pray, the wrong way to pray. We even get the Lord's Prayer here. There's a lot on prayer, but, but now he just really narrows in to prayer all the more, zones in. And he tells us, he shows us rather, in this prayer, the heart of a good father. <laughs> Man, a few weeks ago, uh, our family was in Michigan, uh, where my wife is from, and the church that she grew up in. 
and we get there, and uh, and I'll just be honest with you. I mean, like a lot of you probably love some Chris Tomlin in here. It's not quite, you know, like I, I think there's some good things in, of Chris Tomlin. I ain't got no problems with Chris Tomlin in here, but it's kind of hard to sing sometimes congregationally. So you know, it's a little hard to sing. But they started out with a song. Uh, I look up, I see Chris Tomlin's name. I'm like, uh oh. I'm sitting there thinking, uh oh, how's this gonna work out? <laughs> But we sing, he's a good, good father. You know, you guys know that song? Yeah, we all know that song, I think. He's a good, good father. It's who he is. Or who he is. It says who I am. That's the part that's kind of hard to sing. It's who I am, but it says it's who you are. It's who you are. Uh, but I left, actually, that. I'm like, man, it was really hard to sing congregationally, but, man, it's, it's good. It, it does tell us that our God, our Father, is a good father. <laughs> he really is. He is a good father. And in fact, we see that revealed in Scripture over and over. But in this text, we see the heart of a good, good father revealed. We see it in the fact that he delights for us to come to him in prayer. He delights for us to bring <laughs> our burdens our petitions, anything. <laughs> he delights for us to bring it to him. And even greater, he delights and loves to answer the prayers of his children. Church, that's good stuff already. Uh, so this morning, we don't want to be like the one who forfeits peace. We don't want to be the one who bears needless pain all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. <laughs> let's, let's not be a church that's filled with unnecessary pain. I don't know about anybody else in here. I don't like pain. <laughs> I'm the biggest baby when I get just even the slightest sniffle. <laughs> much less something much weightier than that. I don't want, I don't want any more pain than I have to, to bear. <laughs> and yet, I'm often the most foolish person one of the most dumb sheep of the, in the flock who's not just on my knees praying, often pleading with God. So this morning, we want to look at how we have such a good father, and we see that he's a good father in part because he delights in hearing our prayers and he delights to answer our prayers. This is good news for us. It's a two-point sermon. Don't get too excited. That doesn't mean we won't be here an hour from now, but, but it is two points, and we'll see how that goes for us. But stay with us. Here's our first point this morning. The Father delights in our asking. In other words, the Father delights in us being people of prayer. So the Father delights in our asking, or He delights in our prayer. One of my greatest frustrations in life is when I know there's an answer to a question or a solution to a problem, or there is help to be had by someone who would happily help me to find that solution, to relieve that burden, to get the answer to my question, but, but, but oftentimes, I'm afraid to ask. 
I actually get more frustrated because I, I see a lot more people doing this. I can't tell you that I'm great at everything in this life because any one of you who knows me well at all knows I am not good at many things, but I actually am fairly decent sometimes at asking for help. <laughs> and again, I just told you I don't like pain. <laughs> like if there's an easy way to do something, let's do it that way. <laughs> If there's, a, if there's an efficient way to do something, I'd like to do it that way. I don't always do that perfectly, but, but man, when I see others who don't do that, I actually get frustrated inside. Because I'm like, why are they doing it the hardest way possible? There's some, there's some mentalities of people is like, it's like the only way, and some of you are in this room, the only way you know how to do something is the hard way. Man, there's a way to do something easy, but it's like, let's find the hardest way to do something and do it that way. And a lot of times it's simply because you don't ask for help. Help is right there. Somebody who knows more than you, who understands better than you, is ready to help, and you just don't ask, or I don't ask. Again, I'm still occasionally stubborn here. I can't tell you how many times before we had a lockbox on our, our church's door that has the code. So, you know, like if somebody needs to get into the church, one of our members needs to get into the church for some reason. Um, the lockbox is here. We can tell you the code. You can let yourself in. But before we had that lockbox, it was up to somebody who had one of those keys to come here and unlock the church if a member needed to be in. And I live about four and a half, almost five miles away from here. And there were times where people would call at really inconvenient times to me, and I'm like, I know there's somebody that lives closer, close by, but I just didn't want to bother them. Even though they would have been more than happy to come over and unlock the door, um, I was just still stubborn. Men, I have found that we are particularly prideful when it comes to this principle, and we almost wear this pride as a badge of honor. I did it all by myself. We sound like a little three-year-old, don't we? Our oldest daughter, Natalia, when she was a little girl, she, she would mix some words up. She'd be like, I did it all my by self. <laughs> Sometimes I just feel like that three-year-old or Think about that three-year-old when I hear somebody's like, I did it myself. No one helped me. I'm self-made. I picked myself up by the bootstraps. I went to war and I won. It's great, I think, to myself when I hear people do that. Like, you took eight hours to change a light bulb in your car. When you could have just asked your neighbor, who's pretty good with mechanics, to come over and help you solve that problem in about four and a half minutes. And you're prideful because you missed a whole day with your family out there doing something that would have took you four and a half minutes. Go ahead, you won. You beat the light bulb. <laughs> but man, look at what you lost. One observation that I've made in my life, though, is that women are often the ones in the church known as prayer warriors. I don't know what it is. I've never been in a church that didn't seem to have a heavier, um, a heavier weight of women 
who were the prayer warriors of the church. And in fact, if some of you are members of this church, even give some thought to it. I, I actually feel like we have a more evenly distributed weight here in this church of men and women. But still, overall, if you just spend time thinking for a little bit, the prayer warriors that you've known in your churches, it's probably been, I bet you can think of a lot more women faster. I think about Suzanne Valsine in this church being one we're praying for right now because she's been really sick but who spends most of her day, even in her sickness, but even before that, she just spends her whole day praying for this church. <laughs> and it's been a blessing. But maybe it's because men are generally more prone to pride when it comes to help. So let's look at our first principle from this text of Scripture, and we're going to talk about some implications. And hopefully this will be something that helps us to fight against the pride by which we, men and women, maybe are, are prayerless. We're going to look at some of the reasons why maybe we are, are prayerless or some of the effects of prayerlessness. But let's look at the text first to see, and let this be a motivator to us, that the Father shows His delight. He shows His delight in us being totally reliant upon Him for everything that we need in this life. He delights for us to go to Him in prayer. He loves it. He doesn't want us to bear needless pain. Oh, He does not want us to forfeit peace. He wants to give those things freely, but He also shows us that He wants us to rely upon Him. And we see this revealed in verses 7 through 8. Let's read verses 7 through 8 again. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. I mean, this, this text just seems so clear. And we complicate things. Eight, we see the implications of, of the asking and what will happen when we ask. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. It's abundantly clear that the Father delights for us to pray by the fact that He is happy to respond. He wants to respond to our prayers. That's the way He works. It just seems obvious here. He's telling us if you ask, it will be given. It'll be received by you. And if you seek, it'll be found by you. And if you knock, it will be open to you. That's the picture of somebody who delights to give good gifts. The Father is not burdened by us going to Him. Even if it's for the same thing. Maybe it's even with the same sin struggle that we've had over and over and over again. He doesn't put a qualification on how many times we can go to Him asking. 
or knocking or seeking. He just tells us to come. So he delights for us to pray. And we know that by the fact he delights to respond and to respond positively. But, But here's something else about this text we need to observe. These, the asking and the seeking and the knocking are actually commands. These are commands of Scripture. I'm not a Greek scholar. Don't want to pretend to be, but the verbs here used are present tense imperatives. An imperative usually is equated to a command of Scripture. So if we were to read this literally, it's it's as if we could say it like this, or this is as if Jesus is saying it like this. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. That's a command to not stop. Keep doing that. Does that not reveal the goodness of the Father here? Do you see how that can show us his delight for us to come to him in prayer? That he commands us to do these things? He only commands for us what is good for us. Father commands us to come to him. A father won't command something that does not bring him delight. Now, some of you may be already asking at this point. I've I've been asking. I've been knocking. I've been seeking for something. And I don't feel like I have the answer yet. Or I don't feel like I have the answer that I want yet. Now, be patient. We're going to deal with that towards the end, okay? We'll deal with that very thing towards the end. But stated clearly at this point, we should be people who pray and pray often. I could give you more scripture references than you'd care to write down that testifies to the importance of prayer, but the point is plain already here. Pray, ask, knock, and seek. Father stands ready to bless you. Now what happens when, what what does it demonstrate about us when we don't pray? What does it say about us when we are people who are not prone to immediately carry our burdens or our requests to the Lord in prayer? What does that say about us? We, we, We need to hear this point, this part of the sermon because it does need to serve as a warning to us. I need this warning this morning. (laughs) What does it say about me? And what does it say about the way I view God when I don't carry things to the Lord in prayer? When we don't pray, again, it's a symptom of a type of pride that I referred to earlier. But what we're functionally doing when we don't pray, and if we are a Christian, here's one of the implications. We are putting ourselves in the place of God the Father. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to put ourselves in the seat that belongs to the Father alone. We're trying to put ourselves up on His throne. Now, I know some of you are like, I wouldn't want to do that. That's not what I'm intentionally trying to do. And I'm not saying that you are intentionally trying to do that. But our pride is functionally 
attempting to put ourselves in the place that's reserved for the Father alone. It's to think that we know what's best for our lives, and therefore we don't need to rely upon Him. I can find the solution. I have the best way to do this. I pick myself up by the bootstraps and I just make something happen. Man, Leslie and I occasionally argue. And some of our arguments will happen because she's talking to me and just wants me to hear her. You know, she's been, maybe she's been struggling with some problem and I'm just like, blah, 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 blah. And, and what I'm doing there is I'm just trying to give solutions. To which she then tells me, I don't need you to fix this right now. I just need you to listen. <laughs> Man, don't we, don't we even do this in other areas of life sometimes? When we don't pray, it's saying we know what's best. We always have the solution. We know the best solution for that matter, on how to fix our own problems or to fix the problems of someone else. And that is functionally putting yourself in the place of God. Instead of relying on Him, we're trying to rely on our own wisdom or worldly wisdom. And I don't know if any of you have figured this out yet or not, but usually that's when we start getting pain. <laughs> that's when that peace, that, that we, we start forfeiting that. That's when we start, you know, doing the engineering plan that says, let's find the hardest way to do something and do it that way. We put ourselves in the place of the Father. We only make things worse when we do that. I can't plead with you enough regarding how we should be quick to pray about the person. Actually, this is to tie our scriptures back together. Fortunately, I only preached like maybe three weeks ago, I think is what it was, two, three weeks ago is the last time. And some of you remember that we looked at Matthew 7, 1 through 6, and we gave some implications about verse 6. Let's just see that real quick. If you have your Bibles open. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. And I talked about one of the implications there even being for evangelism or offering correction to someone even in the church who's just not ready to receive that gospel correction yet. They're resistant. They're fighting. And, and I said, don't call them dogs and pigs to their face, but do know that Jesus said they are acting as pigs and dogs when they put up this wall to resistance. But, but then if you remember, I also said, how many times do we just still keep pushing? It's like we need to back off. We need to back off. We need to give them some space. We need to give them space to, for the grace of God to work. Just like as we once acted like pigs and dogs ourselves, we weren't ready to hear some things. We were resistant. We needed God to do some spirit work, but we just somebody kept maybe pushing on us, and it turned us off all the more. I think it's fitting that we go from verse 6 into verse 7 here, just setting the context how much better it would be for us when somebody puts up a wall of resistance to the gospel we preach or to the correction we offer from the word and they're, they're fighting against that, they're trampling on the pearls. How much better would it be for us instead of just trying to finish winning the argument 
would be for us to go to our prayer closets and pray. Plead. Plead with the Lord for the soul of the one that we are trying to see have a right relationship with God or to be restored in their relationship with God. Now, I'm not saying there aren't times to push. That is not what I'm saying. If you hear that, it's not what I'm trying to tell you this morning. But at the same time, man, how much, how much better time would I have spent on many things when I've tried to win an argument where it just would have been better for me to just realize, okay, this person's not ready. I'm going to just commit a long season of prayer for them. <laughs> In fact, Jesus, during his earthly ministry, right, there were some things like his disciples came to him distraught, or like, man, we've, we've been trying to cast out demons and do these things. These, these, these can only be done by prayer and fasting. We need, to, we need to be quick to pray. We need to be quick to plead because we have a God who wants to answer in the affirmative. He wants to say yes. I was once a part of a church and it was a church that was definitely more uh, in the Armenian ways of things. And, and uh, this is when the Lord was starting to open my eyes to some, some things about the doctrines of grace and, and uh, these beautiful truths of, of what I believe the scripture so faithfully teaches. But, I mean, it was a church that had really had a lot of gimmicky ways to try to bring people in to the faith. Um, but I will tell you one that, that I want to be careful not to call a gimmick here. We, we had this program for probably a year, and they called it Seven for Heaven. Any of you ever had been a part of a church and had something like that? Seven for Heaven. And what we were supposed to do was to put on a list seven people's names that are lost and just commit to pray for them. Now, we were to commit to evangelize them as well, but like the big emphasis there was be praying, be praying for these people. And then our church had a list. And we were only supposed to give their first names, but it was a really small town of like 3,000 people, so everybody knew. Put, put that person's name there, and they relate you to him. I was like, well, that's, that's a lost person right there. But we were to pray for a season. And I still remember, <laughs> I still remember, the Lord started saving like just astronomical amounts of people on that list. Our church was united in prayer. In fact, I'll even say his name, James Wyatt and Misty Wyatt, some of our dear friends who's been in ministry now for 15 years were on that list because <laughs> our church was praying. And the Lord delights to answer I'm not saying we're about to have an elders retreat. I don't know. It may be some seven for heaven list that comes out <laughs> the next day. I don't know. But, but we have committed as a church this year to emphasize prayer. We're really sensing this year to, to, to really, we're sensing right now that, that maybe this next year we're also, we're going to have a, a big emphasis on evangelism. We don't know that for sure yet, but we really are just thinking like, how can we become a more faithfully evangelistic people? as a church, as a whole. Pray for us over these next couple of days. The Lord would help us in that. But when we don't pray, again, the point here is that we are putting ourselves in the place of God 
we're putting ourselves in the place of the Father. And it's a shame because he, he wants to answer our prayers. And then when you don't pray, here's another implication. When you don't pray, you're acting as a practical or a functional atheist. What do you mean by that? Say, I believe in Jesus. I trust in the Lord. Maybe I'm just in a funk of prayer. But do know this. I'm not calling you an actual atheist. I'm calling you a practical or a functional atheist. What I mean by that is you're, you're acting like an atheist. You're acting as one whom God doesn't exist. When we don't pray, we act as functional or practical atheists. We're basically saying functionally and practically God doesn't exist, so therefore I'm going to take all these matters into my own hand and I'm going to try to find a way to solve the problem. When we don't pray, we're acting no different than the atheist who seeks to solve his or her own problems. Again, hear these verses. They're just so clear. It's almost hard in some ways to expound on things that are so clear. But I want us to hear this in light of these two problems that we have. Just listen again to what Jesus is telling us about our Father. Ask. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks, it will be opened. Amen? Our next point is this. The first point is that the Father delights in our asking but what this reveals to us about the Father is just as profound, if not more profound. What those first verses reveal to us in that God delights is then greater expounded on and, and puts this definitive foot down which tells us that the Father is good. <laughs> Listen to verses 9 through 11. Verses 9 through 11. Or which one of you if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know, and by the way, there's an implication there at evil. I just want to go ahead and say it. That's everybody. Jesus is on that shore preaching to people. Some, sure, are mixed in. Probably Pharisees or Pharisaical traditions there. They've been the faithful Jew. They've been the one trying to fulfill the law the best that they can, mixed with people who realize that they can't fulfill the law and that they struggle fulfilling the law and the prophets. And he just gives the blanket statement, you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? What good father? Actually, how many of you in this room are fathers? Just go ahead and give me a quick show of hands. A lot of fathers. A lot of fathers in the room. You as fathers. Man, how, how many of you just, just delight to not give a good gift to your children? I mean, like, you just love to tell, tell your children no. Like, it's just fun. I mean, really, there's things that we have to tell our children no to, just as the father 
has to tell us no to some things because we know it won't be for their good. But, but the father, a good father, loves to give good gifts to his children, even the ones that you know good and well. They're just going to squander later. Man, they wanted this gift for their birthday or for Christmas, and they get it, and they play with it for about two days, and then it's with the other pile of stuff that has to go to savers. Or it's on the Facebook marketplace. I don't know. At least try to recoup something of that. <laughs> then you let your children keep the money. That's, that's, that's not how I roll in my house. <laughs> You're going to give me that money back. <laughs> No, no, that wouldn't be a gift then, right? That's not how the father works. The father loves to say yes. We as fathers love to say yes to our children. We want them to have good gifts. We don't want to, children, just tell you no for the sake of telling you no. But then here we see Jesus showing us that evil parents, evil parents, know how to give good gifts to their children. Even those who are fallen, evil people, know how to give good gifts to your children. He, he shows us this by, by giving us the uh, display of even an evil parent that if their son asks for bread, doesn't sit there and paint a stone to look like a piece of bread so that they can gnaw their teeth in and just feel that horrible crunch. Or if he asks for a fish, it's going to like have this, this, and really here, there's the idea of a venomous serpent, a venomous snake. It's going to give them something that's going to bring them harm. That's not what the father gives to his children. He's not a deceiver. The father, you need to get this, is not a deceiver. That's not who he is. There's another one who's a deceiver. In fact, Satan, Diabolos, the devil, I mean, his very name means accuser, deceiver. But that's not our father. That's not our father here. He's not a, 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 a one who loves to master trickery. But many of you in this room have an idea of God like this. Like, I do, I believe that, Yeah. Some of you have the idea that God's always out to get you. Don't raise your hand, but have any of you ever struggled with that? You're like, man, he is just always out to get me. He's always just laying some, some snare, some trap to make me fall over. And we, 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 you know, we tend to err on the side of thinking it's for good purposes. He's trying to get my attention. That's how we justify it. But really, we're leaning more into the side of, man, God's just trying to trip me up. He doesn't want to see me succeed. He wants to see me fall. And some of you have this idea about the father because maybe you did have fathers who were like that. Maybe you did have an earthly father who did things, who, who brought harm upon you, who failed in many ways who abandoned you, who didn't have your good in mind, or maybe who did get a chuckle out of laying some kind of snare for you to fall over. Man, the way that 
we've dealt with earthly fathers often has this correlation to the way we think of the good father. But that's not who he is. We have to reorient ourselves to who the father is. He's not a tricker. He's not a deceiver. He's not out here laying a snare for you. Man, I sometimes function like this. I do like the phrase, I shouldn't like it. I kind of say it sometimes just because I know it gets under Leslie's feathers a little bit. But if I had, if, if I had, if I didn't have bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. <laughs> really, that's a way that we're saying something about our father. He's not out there trying to lay snares for us. The father is not evil, but even evil fathers. Now, when we see this, we know that we, we can wrestle this against what we do see that makes the nightly news. Where a father or a mother has done something just extremely evil to their children. Man, uh, the fallen nature of man, we have to be on the lookout for because we while God's common grace holds many people uh, with a set of restraints that keeps them from being as bad as they could be, we do know it's a dangerous thing to resist the promptings of the Lord's Spirit to repent and believe upon Him because you just might keep going down that path to where your evil plays itself out in some very nasty ways. But again, overall, He's speaking to us to show us that we are fallen people, evil people, and he does show us that even evil fathers don't do the things that we make ourselves believe that the father does. Again, look at verse 11. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? He's saying not even evil fathers do these types of things. That's actually a good argument. That generally speaking in the world, generally speaking in the world, even fallen fathers don't want to give bad gifts to their children. Why would we think God the Father is worse than that? It makes no sense. He's the only one that can be infinitely and cosmically good and holy and perfect. He's the only one. And yet, we equate a finite creature with an infinite God who is infinitely holy. We, we, we place unholy creatures and equate them with a holy God. And we think that the holy God is worse than an unholy father. That's the, he's trying to help us see that point, see that contradiction, to see that struggle in the text. To expose us. Why would you? It's like he's saying, why would you think about the Father in a way that's worse than you would think about somebody here on this earth who doesn't do those types of things? Does that make sense? Are we, are we getting that? Like, is that point ringing out? I want to make sure that you get that. The next time you think that God's just up there with his feet, you know, up on his uh, footstool, which is called the earth, and he's just sitting there getting a chuckle out of watching you fall all over the place. That's not our Father. 
That's not what he delights in. Even your earthly fathers don't do that. Sam Storms, faithful pastor on this text in point, he also quotes some D.A. Carson along the way. Let me just read something from him really quick. He says, Jesus' point is that in spite of man's evil nature, it's inconceivable that a father would turn a deaf ear to his son's request for food. If a hungry boy were inclined to ask his otherwise abusive and wicked father for food, surely he would not refuse his child the request, far less taunt and torture him by substituting something similar in appearance, but altogether different and even dangerous. If a child requests a loaf of bread, his father will not deceive him by giving him instead a stone of like size and color, will he? If the child hungers for a fish or an egg, surely his father will not try to pass off a snake or a scorpion in its place, will he? Although this man is evil, he will certainly come to the aid of his earthly child. Listen, how much more then shall our heavenly father, who not only is not evil, but is infinitely good, wise and powerful give us those things we most desperately need by just so much as the goodness of one's heavenly father exceeds that of his earthly father so does his willingness to give in response to our prayers god must not be thought of says carson as a reluctant stranger who can be cajoled or bullied into bestowing his gifts or as a malicious tyrant who takes vicious glee in the tricks he plays or even as an indulgent grandfather who provides everything requested of him, rather he is our loving father, all wise, overflowing with goodness. That's a good father. <laughs> the end of our argument here concludes, the father is not evil. He desires to give good gifts to his children. He cannot nor will not do anything else. By, by the way, let's just think about how good he is for a moment. Some of you are here exploring the Christian gospel, the Christian faith this morning. Maybe you're asking or have been asking of yourself, is God really good? Think about it this way. What the Bible's message reveals to us about our problem and of salvation is this, is that we are all fallen people. Every last one of us are born, we are conceived in sin, we are born into a sinful world, we have a propensity to sin. No parent has to teach their children how to lie, they figure it out on their own. No one has to teach a child how to disobey, they figure it out on their own. Why is that? Because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world in which Adam, our first father, rebelled against God by partaking of the forbidden fruit. In other words, his pride led him there. He thought he knew better than God who had told them directly what would happen when they partake, partook of the fruit. And so we have this fallen nature. We're in rebellion against God. God then gives the law to people. And he gives us the law to show us our sin, to show us our need of him. It's just like a stop sign has been placed on a country road where nobody ever travels on that road. There's like this four-way stop that you're like, it shouldn't even be here. They put a stop sign 
And inevitably, what do you do? You creep up to that thing, and you just roll right through it, right? Because you don't see anybody else around. I actually was in Montana recently, a few a month or so ago. I actually thought it was kind of crazy. In the middle of Billings, Montana, they have all these roads that cross, and there's no sign at all in the city. <laughs> I'm going to get killed. Um, but you're supposed to, like, look around and all this stuff. But, it's, it's, I mean, the law's like the stop sign. <laughs> We cannot keep the law in full. Some of you are like, I'm doing a pretty good job at it. But do you know that James chapter 2, verse 10, tells us that if you failed even in one point of the law, what does it say, church? It says if you've broken the whole thing and are guilty of the whole thing. How is that? How is that? because we're finite people who are unholy. God is infinite and infinitely holy. In fact, it would be a violation of his very nature and character for him to allow even the hint or whiff of one small sin into his presence. That shows us our problem. It shows us our need. That even shows us why there is a, an eternity of wrath to be paid by the one who does not trust in the means in which he's given to reconcile us, which, again, I'm painting the picture and making the point of how we know our Father is good. When we had this huge cosmic problem that would take an eternity to deal with, what did he do? He gave his one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to come to the earth, to take on something he had not taken on before, which is flesh, to fulfill the law in its entirety, right? We would say it, he never sinned, even in one small point. It said that he fulfilled the law and the prophets. Man, even if somebody had been able to fulfill the law, even the things that the prophets expounded on and did, like no human being could ever keep the whole thing. It's just impossible for someone who's fallen to fulfill that. And yet Jesus, who was not fallen, fulfilled every single part of it for us in small part, big part, great part, small part, near part, wide part. God the Father gave his one and only son to fulfill the law in our place. And yet, for sinners like us, Jesus went to the cross. He took the wrath. In his death, he took the wrath that would have taken us an eternity because we are finite beings. Jesus took the wrath, fully God and fully man took the wrath of God upon himself and paid for it in his death and the hours on the cross. Dealt with it once and for all. He did something that the blood of bulls and goats could not ever do. He was the perfect substitute. He was the perfect sacrifice. He took our sins upon himself, 2 Corinthians 5.21, and paid for them. And in the same vein, all of his righteous law-keeping ways, by faith in him, 
were credited to our account. It's not just enough that we never sin, but we also have to proactively be fulfilling all the law and the prophets ourselves perfectly, which we could not do. That's what the Father demands. Only Jesus did that. So the way that we're reconciled to God is not just by having like our, our sins wiped away, but it also means you should be fulfilling all righteousness yourself. The fact we could not do that reveals another problem. When Jesus died on the cross, he wiped away our sin debt. He paid for that. But also then his righteousness is imputed or credited to our account. And so this is how we're reconciled to God. This is how God the Father can see us now and not smite us. <laughs> as we deserve, he sees us as he sees Jesus. And it's because he sees us covered with Jesus. He sees us covered in his righteousness, in his righteous robes. So when the Father is looking at us now, if by faith alone in him, that is, that is our trust and that is our hope, the Father is looking at us, even though we still sin, even though we still fall, but he sees us sinless. He sees us holy because he sees Jesus covering us. So for somebody to say the Father is not good, it's just absolutely ludicrous. Now, we see that. Jesus paid your penalty on the cross. And what's awesome about this is that our good Father doesn't then, doesn't then just go on to say, now, keep the commandments perfect and you can have this salvation. He doesn't even say to us, do your best at keeping them and for whatever you lack at the end of your life, the grace of Christ will then kick in and make up for your difference and help get you over the hump. None of these are remedies because none of these are gifts. If we bring any of our good works to the table, this is no longer a gift but it's a wage. We get what we pay for. We work and we receive the rewards of our wage, but it's not a gift. What the Father has given to us is a gift, nothing but a gift. And it just has to be received by faith. We see the Father's good character displayed and that he loves to give good gifts to his children. He's not giving you chores. He's giving you gifts. Wrap this, wrap this up. So I did tell you that we'll give just a few moments on how should we view when he doesn't give us what we ask for? How do we process that? How do we think about this? I've been praying for healing. I've been praying that God would save one of my children or all of my children or my parent who has resisted Christ. Some of you in this room have asked for the gift of restored health only to receive worse health. Some of you have asked for that loved one to be saved, but they only seem to grow more hardened. Some of you have asked for more provisions to live comfortably, but you just lost your job and your income won't keep up with inflation. I remember Leslie and I, one of the hardest times for, for us being married was in 2014 when we received the news that 
uh, we, our baby girl who was right at term to be born, uh, we go to the doctor and found out that she had passed away in the womb. Hardest time, you know, that I can remember going through. Uh, we've had some other hard times, but that one was hard. But I still remember, like, thinking, if I just pray, if I just pray hard enough and ask. I remember being in the delivery room with Leslie where everything said, you know, like, she's going to deliver a stillborn child today. And being in the delivery room with her and even still just praying, Lord, do a miracle here. Do something to make your name great and display your goodness and awesomeness. And God said, no. Is he a bad father? No. <laughs> Man, there have been more, more blessed lessons to learn through all of that than we can count. The shock and awe of the immediate sense gets you. I'm not going to lie. It gets you. It punches you in the throat. But man, when you move on a little bit beyond, as time goes on, you start to look back and you're like, man, this is what the Lord was doing. This is how he worked. This is what he was teaching. This is what he was doing. And it's even okay to then say, it's good that he said no. <laughs> I really do think that Romans 8.28 is appropriate for the purpose. Look at Romans 8.28 real quick. I'm going to have... <laughs> keep telling you, I promise to get this thing wrapped up, but it's worth seeing this. Romans 8, 28. And I've also struggled with this because sometimes I've heard people say, you know, when someone else in the church is suffering, when they're in the middle of their suffering, you know what, there's a wrong time to give a right verse of scripture. I do believe that, but, but man, it's hard not to believe that Romans 8, 28 isn't always a good verse of scripture to give to somebody who's suffering. Romans 8, 28 and following. And we know that those for those who love God, all things, <laughs> all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, it works for our good. Our good. All things God does for his children. He is working for our good. <laughs> For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. When he says no, he's saying no so that we would be conformed more to the image of his son. That's good. I need to be more like Jesus. Jesus suffered. His suffering was good. in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called. Thank God we've been called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Thank God for those of us who have believed because we've been called, we've been justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Listen, church, he may say no right now or he may answer in a different way. It's not that he's not listening and it's not that he's not answering but what he is doing is he is conforming. <laughs> he is conforming you more to the image of his son so that his most precious gifts will be re received on the day of Christ Jesus <laughs> when we are glorified with Christ. <laughs> Man, we will be glorified 
with Him. There's no gift greater than that. We will be in the presence of God the Father forever, always glorifying Him the right way. Everything that we do is for His glory. We are receiving nothing but good all of our days forever and ever and ever and ever. We have a good Father. And we need to be people who rely on Him. We need to be people who are quick to pray to this good Father whose answer is always yes for our good, for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for what Your command to prayer tells us about You what it reveals about you. Father, forgive us, forgive me, where I am too quick to attempt to place myself in your seat, which would be blasphemy, where I am too quick to act as the atheist, to just bring about unnecessary pain, and to forfeit peace because I don't come to you. We don't come to you often in prayer. But, oh, Lord, we pray that our hearts would be conformed this day more to the image of your son Christ who even left good works, even at times walking away when there were more people in the crowd to be healed and delivered, He just walked away. Almost like he snuck off and just went up to pray. Father, help us. Help some of us. We might be so busy right now, and that's our excuse for not praying to you often. Lord, help us to to look at our schedules. Take advantage of the early morning hours to do whatever it takes that we would not neglect connecting with you, to ask you and to seek and to knock. Father, we pray that you would unleash your blessings upon this local church and its impact in this community. Father, we pray that we would be a church who in concert prays together for you to save sinners just as you've saved us. And oh Lord, help us this day not to forget the greatest gift that's been given to us, which is your son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of our sins. We pray these things in his name, in Jesus' name, amen.